Okay, so tonight we have chanted the Kandaparita, the Tilakkanadigata, and the Paragaminogata. Tonight I thought I'd talk about the Visuddhimagga. And it's a good timing because we just chanted the verses which inspired the name of the book. The Tilakkanadigata, the Tilakkanagata. Sabe Sankara Anijati. All Sankaras, all formations are impermanent. Yada Panyaya Pasati Atanimbindati Dukhe E Samago The path of purification is to see with wisdom that all formations are impermanent, all formations are suffering, and all Dhammas, indeed formations and the unformed. Dhamma, which is Nibbana, or Anatta, or non-self. And seeing with wisdom, becoming bored of suffering, becoming disenchanted with suffering. This, this is the path of purification. So the Visuddhimagga starts with this quote. And then it goes on to detail the seven Visuddhi to break down the Buddhist teaching into, well, first of all, three trainings, training in morality, training in concentration, and training in wisdom. But then to break that down even further to the seven Visuddhi, the Visuddhi Manga, the seven purification. So purification is a good way to understand the Buddhist teaching. It's the first of the objectives that the Buddha had in teaching the Satipatthana, Satanang Visuddhiya, for the purification of beings. This is why the Buddha taught the four Satipatthana. And even a cursory glance through the Buddha's teachings shows you that this idea of purification is one of the core concepts, the cause for suffering, the, the or, truth of the origin of suffering is tanha, which is considered to be a defilement of the mind, craving or desire, thirst, is considered to be the cause of suffering. So it is defilement that the Buddha described as being the cause of all of our suffering. And so he, the path that he taught was the path to become free from mental defilement, free from those things that cause us suffering. It's called a defilement because it brings you suffering. That's the point. And so for, it was with this in mind that Buddha Gosa put together this treatise based on the purification. Now the purifications themselves don't come from the Visuddhimagga. The seven purifications are in the Tipitaka, in the Ratavinita Sutta, the Sutta between Sariputta and Purnamandani Putta. Purna was a monk who was well uh, respected by the other monks as being capable in uh, capable of teaching the Dhamma. And so Sariputta thought that he would like to meet this monk, and so he heard that he was going into the forest, and he followed after him into the forest. And after they had practiced meditation alone in, in, in the forest, Sariputta came and uh, asked him some questions about the seven Visuddhis. And Purnamantani Buddha, uh, he explained to Sariputta, not knowing that it was Sariputta actually. He said afterwards, if he had known it was Sariputta, he wouldn't have said so much. Sariputta is the Buddha's chief disciple and of greatest wisdom besides the Buddha. But uh, not knowing, he, he tried to explain to Sariputta what was the path of purification or the, what was the path of the Buddha. What is the Buddha's teaching for? It's not for any one of the seven purifications, but the seven purifications are that which leads to the goal. And what's the goal? 
อนุปาดิเสสนิบาณนิบาณ or freedom without remainder so becoming free from suffering without any potential to fall back into suffering complete freedom from suffering but he explained it using the seven visuddhis uh, discussing them with Sariputta about how one leads to the other so the first visuddhi is called sila visuddhi the first purification is the purification of morality sila visuddhi leads to uh, jitta visuddhi the purification of the mind or mind states which is concentration <coughs> So morality leads the mind to become pure, or our momentary mind states to become pure. Jitta visuddhi leads to something called ditti visuddhi, which is seeing things. Ditti means seeing or vision or view. Uh, it means having clear vision of reality, not yet in terms of the characteristics of reality, but seeing what is real, seeing that. Reality is made up of um, something we call nama rupa. Nama being being the awareness, and rupa being the uh, physical observed reality experience. So, when we see something, there is the the, the nama, the rupa. Anyway, seeing this is called ditti visuddhi. Ditti visuddhi leads to kanka vidarana visuddhi by overcoming doubt doubt here specifically about the nature of um, or the interactions between nama rupa kangavitaranavisuddhi overcoming doubt leads to manga maganyana dasanavisuddhi which means purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path which in turn leads to patipatanyana dasanavisuddhi knowledge and vision of the path of practice which finally leads to jnana dasana visuddhi, purification by knowledge and vision of nibbana, of the goal. And so these are the seven visuddhis, the seven stages of purification as taught in the Buddha's teaching. I'm not sure that they actually came in this numeration from the Buddha himself. I'm not really a scholar, so I'm, I'm not sure where it came from, but quite clearly this is the order of things in the Buddha's teaching. This is how it goes. The the main framework is Sila Samadhi Panya. Sila Visuddhi is morality. Jitta Visuddhi is concentration and Diti Visuddhi, Kangavitarana Visuddhi, Magamaganyana Dasana Visuddhi, Patipadanyana Dasana Visuddhi. And Jnana Dasana Visuddhi, these are Panya or wisdom. So in brief it's morality, concentration and wisdom and this is the path of practice that we follow in, in Buddha's teaching. You go in this order. You start with morality and you go through concentration and finally cultivate wisdom. And this goes back to the f verse that Buddha Gosa brings up before he starts to explain the Visuddhimagga. The verse that he uses is from the Sangyutta Nikaya. This angel comes to the Buddha and asks him, Tang tang Gotama Puchami Kovichatiye Jatang. I ask you, Gotama, who can untangle the tangle? Anto Jata Bahijata Jataya Jatita Pacha. Tang tang Gotama Puchami Kovimang Vichatiye Jatang. The inner tangle and the outer tangle, this, uh, the, the human race or the, no, the, the population or the the world, you might say. The world is tangled by the tangle, entangled in a tangle. And therefore, I ask the great Gotama, Go imang who here can untangle this tangle? And the reply of the Buddhas is what's important, where he said, standing or with a foundation of morality jittang means jitta like jitta visuddhi means concentration 
Jittam just means mind, but here it, it refers cultivating the mind or cultivating concentration. Panyancha and wisdom. So concentration and wisdom, bhavayang, cultivating or developing. One who sees the danger in samsara, who is wise and energetic. So So one who works hard can untangle the tangle. Works hard at morality, concentration and wisdom. And so he uses that as just a, an ex, a useful, a beautiful verse that uh, points out the three, the importance of the three t trainings in terms of overcoming uh, the defilements, overcoming the problems in the world. So this is the the, the, the core of the Buddha's training is morality, concentration, and wisdom. This is what he explains with this. And then he goes into to detail morality concentration using the seven visuddhis. It's quite actually a useful imagery before I go into it to, to, to pause for a second and think about this and explain a little bit about what is meant here. This is really the point of following the path of purification, is this tangle that the angel is talking about, describing the nature, the state of, of the world as being entangled. How entangled we get by people and places and things. We become attached to things that bring us pleasure and we become repulsed and averse to things that bring us pain. We have the inner tangle and the outer tangle, antojata bahijata. The inner tangle is all of our emotions and our confusions and our worries and our fears and our likes and our dislikes. And the outer tangle is the external forces like our job and our study and our family and our culture all of the things that we are attached to and all of the things that bother us and disturb us. All of the fights and the arguments that we get in and the, the clinging and the, the concern that we have, the confusion and the stress and the worry that we have, the doubt and uncertainty in our lives. This is this angel looking at human beings and looking at even at the angels saw what a great angle it is that we've gotten ourselves into. Quite uh, quite naughty, quite quite mixed up. No? Nowadays we have so much complexity in our lives. Everything is much more complicated than just living simple animalistic lives. No? In some ways, it's a good thing where we're now able to connect to each other and some of the interesting things that complexity has brought about or at least shown us. It's, uh, it's finally come back to the point where, there, where people have a little bit of power, whereas for a time it seemed like we were destined to be slaves to tyrants. Now it seems that there, well, there always has been the, the hope that we might be able to communicate and share information and share ideas and share the truth freely. And on the other hand, the, the, the bad side of complexity is, is that it's made our lives much more um, well, much more complex, no? and it's it's made our minds all the more busy. We are unable to focus, and we're unable to live in contentment. And you see, if you ever go to places where people don't have technology or um, 
enter well, technology more or less don't have complexity. They're much more content and much more patient. You really get a feeling for what real and true contentment, real true true patience is. Such people because they're able to bear with great difficulty without becoming upset about it. Whereas when you're used to being able to avoid difficulty, when you have all these ways to avoid your problems, you become very upset at the slightest difficulty. And they're very content because they've never cultivated this addiction to sensuality that that um, people with technology have. The addiction to entertainment, the ability to gain the objects of your desire almost instantly. And in a much quicker rate and a much uh, more intense manner. The intensity is on a whole other scale. And so the result, the resulting addiction is much stronger. So in, in some sense our, our ability to get what we want, even in even good things, our ability to, to get in touch with people over the internet, for example, it actually um, in some ways it's a curse. It's a, I think of it as a blessing. But the, the curse is that we, we become dependent on it. We become dependent on our ability to get what we want quickly. We're not as patient or as content as we were before. Before, if we had to wait for something for a long time, we, we, we could wait patiently. And now we know that we can have it quickly, so we, we become more needy and more demanding potentially. So they're, they're, with complexity there, there can be good and there can be bad, but the tangle that, that he's talking about here is not just the complexity of it. He's, the, this angel is talking about the complexity or the, the tangle of defilements, the fighting and the, um, the problems that come from, from sensuality. Even two and a half thousand years ago it was already there. Today it hasn't gone away the fighting that we get into, families that fight and break up because of sensuality. A lot of the, the divorces and the breaks, breakups of families, it can, it can just be attributed to sensuality, an inability to, or a discontent with what you have. The husband or the wife becomes discontent and so decides that they need to, they, they, they want to they're, they're not, they don't want to be bothered by the, um, by the formality of, of marriage or by a single relationship, for example. Why friends break up, why brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers fight with their children and children fight with their parents. The greatest reason is just sensuality. As children grow up, they start to gain, get more and more... Um, more and more stuck in sensuality and in, in getting what they want and when their parents don't give it to them they become more and more rebellious. Parents trying to control their children, trying to, or, or parents who are bothered by their children whose lives were much more pleasurable before they had children so find that the children's needs and wants and the children's interruption in their lives is uh, unpleasant. No, it, it prevents them from pursuing the great pleasure that they had before. And so they will... You know, we, 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 we rationalize it, but if you, if you look closely, it's very much simply our attachment to things that causes us to, to cling and to, to fight and to get entangled with each other. We get caught up in, in positive ways and negative ways. This is the entanglement. So this is what we're talking about purifying or, or cleansing. 
cleansing our, our the, the mix-up that we have. And it's very, very visceral, this feeling of untying, untangling the tangle, because our problem seems so difficult to, um, to work out when we don't have, when, when, we, when, we, uh, when we look at them as a whole, when we see them as a problem. When you look at your life, often it seems like you're facing insurmountable difficulties and you don't see, you can't see a way out and it feels like this is an impossible situation. And yet when you begin to look at it and begin to pick it apart, in, take it into, in, apart into pieces, you see that actually it's, or you, or you feel yourself untying the, untangling the tangle. And you see that it's all just a bunch of threads, you know, a bunch of habits that we've cultivated that can easily be worked out. And we realize that it's only our lack of understanding. You know, we didn't go in and pick it apart before, that it looked like a big mess. So all we had to do is untangle it, and we see that there is actually no problem. There's no knot, right? A knot is not a real thing. The only thing that exists is this, the thread. Once you untie the knot, it's as though it never existed. So this is what is meant. Now, to, to get into the actual path of practice, the seven visuddhis, we'll go through them one by one. Sila visuddhi is the very beginning of the practice. Um, in conventional terms, it's described as keeping the precepts. When you keep five precepts, or eight precepts, or ten precepts, or 227 precepts, or 311 precepts, or however many precepts you keep, if, they're, if they keep you from doing and saying bad things, this is considered to be morality. But in the meditation practice, it has to go a little bit deeper than that. You have to actually mean it. It's not going to help you cultivate concentration if you just keep the precepts. Uh, or, or it's not going to necessarily bring you concentration if you're just keeping the precepts, because you can get very angry and greedy and so on. Um, even when you're keeping the precepts. It will help uh, slowly. Over the years, you'll become maybe a better person if you avoid uh, doing and saying bad things. But it's, it's not good enough to immediately bring uh, concentration, obviously. So we have to look a little bit deeper than that. Concentration, all of the Visuddhis, we can think of them as coming from the four Satipatthana, because the Buddha said the Satipatthana are that which leads to Satanang Visuddhya, the purification of beings. So we think of it as the first thing that comes from practicing the Satipatthana. Even before you get concentration, morality is the bringing your mind back to rest on one object. You know, it, because it's that which leads to concentration. Before the concentration arises, there is morality. Morality is keeping your mind with the object, bringing the mind back to the object. So when you're walking, they're bringing the mind back to the present moment. The mind that is wandering here, wandering there, bringing it back is morality. Bringing it back is a um, delimiting of the mind's uh, activities or, or limiting the mind's activity, putting boundaries on where the mind can go, putting boundaries in terms of the, uh, the reality. So one, one aspect of morality is described as uh, indriya samvarasila, the guarding of the senses. And this is a useful way of understanding morality because the six senses are the borders to reality. They're the doors to experience. All that we experience is either seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. That's what's going on right now. All that we have right now is these six senses. But there seems to be so much more. And all of that is, in, in some sense, immorality. In the sense that it's creating delusion, it's creating attachment, it's creating identification. All of the illusions that we have of things, people and places and things are that which creates uh, defilement in the mind, makes the mind impure. If it's, if it's something you like, it's creating a, a habit of greed and attachment. If it's something you dislike, it's creating a habit of anger and aversion. Even if it's something you don't like or dislike, 
the delusion of thinking that it's real creates attachment, the idea that this is me, this is mine, uh, creates conceit, creates arrogance, and so on. And so gives rise to delusion. So the morality is just keeping yourself in the realm of these six senses. When you see, let it only be seeing. When you hear, let it only be hearing. When you smell, let it only be smelling. Tasting, feeling, thinking. When you walk, let it only be walking. When you sit, let it only be sitting. Understand everything as what it is. When, when you say to yourself, sitting, sitting, or walking, walking, or seeing, seeing, or when you have pain and you say pain, pain, this is keeping the mind from going the next step into liking or disliking. When you have pain and you say to yourself, pain, pain, the disliking doesn't arise. This is what we mean by morality. It keeps you from falling into defilement. So Sita Visuddhi is, is accomplished at the moment of, of insight meditation practice, at the moment of the practice of the four Satipatthanas. Once you have morality, that's when your concentration starts to arise. You start to be able to clearly see uh, the objects as they are. You see the pain as just pain. You see the rising of the abdomen as just the rising of the abdomen, rising and falling. When you sit, you see it just as an uh, experience. There's no sitting involved, but the experience is one that we give a name to it called sitting. But you see that as an experience of, of uh, physical element there arises this concentration the mind which is clearly focused this is called Jitta Visuddhi now Jitta Visuddhi has many different levels if you read the Visuddhi Magga you'll see that actually it's much more than that Jitta Visuddhi you can go in all over the place you can enter into trances that give you magical powers you can enter into um, trances that allow you to experience the whole of reality, you know, experience infinite space, infinite consciousness. There's lots of amazing things that you can do with the mind, with a pure mind. And so the Visuddhimagga, the book goes through them all. But the salient quality of concentration is this focused mind that takes one object, ekagata, a mind that takes a single object. So when you have pain, it, it only knows the pain. Even that is called jitta visuddhi. It means the mind at that moment is pure. It's not, uh, it's not projecting. It's not extrapolating upon the object. It's not seeing it as more than it is. Pain is just pain. Seeing is just seeing. This is concentration. And it's this concentration that leads to wisdom. So it's important to, to explain here that certain types of morality may not lead to, to concentration, and certain types of concentration don't necessarily lead to wisdom. Concentration that is based on a concept, if you're, if you're for example, basing it on the breath, because everyone likes to practice breath meditation, but if it's based on in-breaths and out-breaths, like in, out, in, out, you'll never gain wisdom that way, because an in-breath and an out-breath are not real. If you're strictly focused on the, the, the in-breaths and the out-breaths, it's a concept. Nothing is going into the body and nothing is going out of the body. You have to focus instead on the experience of the breath, the stomach rising or the, the, the heat or the cold uh, at the nose, which isn't the breath anymore, it's, it's a physical uh, experience. If you focus on a, a light or so on, you focus on the light as uh, light, light, light. You can enter into a, a state of, of trance and you can actually gain magical powers. You can leave your body and, and lots of strange things can happen. Um, but it will not give rise to wisdom it, because it's a concept. You're no longer dealing with, with ultimate reality. The point is, you'll never, you'll never understand. You, you know, you can make it be anything you want. You can make it infinitely large. You can control it. You know, it seems like there's a sense of control when you're living in this. When you're acting in the realm of concepts, anything is possible. Even things that defy reality, you start to feel permanence, satisfaction, and controllability. And it seems that that's the nature of reality, when in fact it's not because you're, not, you're no longer dwelling in reality, you're no longer looking at what's really going on. 
you don't realize that at that moment that this is a contrived state, that it's something that has been cultivated and that's the only reason it's occurring. You think that you're controlling it. So it's still, um, there's still clinging involved. That's jittavisuddhi. If you use if you use um, ultimate reality, I mean, eventually you have to use ultimate reality. Once you, you start using ultimate reality, that's when the mind starts to, um, that's when wisdom starts to arise. That's when your concentration can lead to wisdom, focusing on body, focusing on mind, because that's what leads to the third purification, ditti visuddhi. you start to see nama and rupa. So this is where we start in vipassana meditation. You start watching the rising and falling. Once you get focused and you're actually able to see the rising and falling, it just takes a couple of days, you'll start to see nama and rupa. You'll see that the rising is, is one thing and the mind that goes to know it is another thing. You'll see that the foot that moves and the mind that knows it are, are two different things. You'll see that one foot, the mind that arises in the right foot is not the mind that arises in the left foot. There is the knowing in, of the right foot arises and ceases then there's a knowing in the left foot. There are two different knowings. So you're able to, to differentiate moment by moment by moment and see that experience arises and ceases every moment, that death is something that occurs moment to moment. Death of a person is just a concept. Um, the only true death, besides the death of defilements, or the, 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 the destruction of, of all of the defilements in the mind and freedom from suffering, the only real death that we have is this birth and death at every moment. Uh, this is called Nama Rupa Parichedanyana. You're able to separate Nama and Rupa into two different things. The moments you're able to see and then you're able to see what is Nama and what is Rupa. Nama is that which knows, Rupa doesn't, is that which doesn't know. So the rising and falling doesn't know that it's rising. Only when the mind goes to it is there the knowledge. Only when the mind arises that knows the rising knows the following. Like when you hear something, when you're, you're listening, or when you're not listening, when you're watching television or so on, and someone calls you, you often don't register. Or you're not watching television, but suppose you're at the computer working very hard, someone can call you and you might not even hear them. Uh, because the mind isn't at the ear. Or the, the, the mind is focused on something else, so ear consciousness doesn't arise. So this is Ditti Visuddhi. Kankavitarana Visuddhi is where you start to see um, cause and effect. Now cause and effect is the law of nature that the Buddha taught, right? The Four Noble Truths are cause and effect, Patichasamupada is cause and effect. Karma, the meaning of karma is cause and effect. So this is the law of nature that the Buddha taught. So that's the reason we use the word Kankavitarana, overcoming doubt. Because doubt about reality, doubt about the truth, doubt about the teaching of the Buddha, doubt about karma doubt about cause and effect. How this works, why this happens, is because you once you look at Nama Rupa, you see that they work together in very strict relationships. They don't just occur randomly. When you get angry, it gives rise to shouting and, and, and karma. No? The, the kilesa leads to karma. Sometimes when, when, when you, someone hits you, it makes you angry. And then when you get angry, you hit the other person back. So rupa, the being hit, the, the physical experience, leads to nama, makes you upset. The upset leads back to rupa. Nama causes rupa, rupa causes nama. They're the cause and effect together. When you want to stand, that's what causes you to stand up. When you, want, when, when you stand up, that's what causes you to know that you're standing up. The sim so simple cause and effect, everything works this way. When the stomach rises, then there's the knowing of the rising, or sometimes the mind which expects it to rise proceeds, and then the rising comes afterwards. So you see that nama and rupa work together uh, in terms of cause and effect, and, the, and you see that this this works equally. This is equally true for ethical states, good states and bad states. Greed, anger, and delusion have their causes and have their effects. You can't get greedy and not have an addiction arise as a result. You can't get angry and not have suffering arise as a result. They, they, they are. These are the laws of nature. So, this is um, this is, goes without saying how useful this is. This is what allows us then to start to break down these patterns. Um, 
the, the, the you know, intrinsic law of nature is that the mind doesn't want to suffer. That uh, when you see, when, when there is the knowledge that something brings suffering, immediately the mind will release it, immediately the mind will, will stop. When you realize that you're causing yourself suffering, you will give it up without hesitation, without having to think about it. Uh, so, so simply seeing that this is causing us suffering, this is causing us uh, pain, uh, you know, seeing the, the problem and, and the cause and effect nature, seeing what is causing you suffering, causes you to give it up. So, Kankavitaranavisati allows you to, to overcome doubt by understanding what is the path and, and you know, what is the way to, to suffering, what is the way to happiness. That then leads you to the next purification called Magga Magganyana Dasnavisuddhi, which uh, is, is exactly that, understanding what is the path and what is not the path. Once you start to see how things work, you start to purify uh, your, your conduct, your practice. The meaning is when you first start to practice, you're practicing right sometimes, wrong sometimes. A beginner meditator can't be expected to practice correctly. Uh, and this is what you have to actually deal with through through quite a bit of your practice is uh, practicing incorrectly that you're not you know you 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 think you're the more you practice the more you progress but actually some of the time you're practicing maybe incorrectly and so you're not progressing people can practice meditation even for years if they don't have a proper proper guidance and not get anywhere because they're on the wrong path so the next one is using this knowledge of cause and effect, if you're focused, if you're objective about cause and effect, this is how you understand what is what is the path and what is not the path. Because you see, this is clearly leading to this, that is clearly leading to that. Until that time, very easy to get caught up in the wrong path. And the, 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 the easy ones to get caught up in are called the ten upakilesa in the Visuddhimagga. So things like bright lights, colors, pictures, when, when you see something in your meditation or when you hear something, it's easy to get caught up and lost following after that. When you feel calm, when you feel happy, when you feel, uh, when you feel quiet inside, it's easy to think that suddenly this is the path and get, get caught up on it. People can practice this way for years thinking that they've, they've got something because whenever they sit down they feel calm, they feel peaceful, they feel very quiet, there's nothing. So they think they've come to some special state. It's kind of a special state, but it doesn't lead anywhere. It just leads to more calm and more quiet. Uh, some people have great energy, some people have great faith, give rise to faith, some people give rise to, to, to knowledge and, and vision of things, like able to see far away or uh, their minds start working very clearly, and so they think and think and think, and they work out all their problems. All these good good results of practice or byproducts of meditation that um, give us some kind of special experience. It's easy to get caught up in them, uh, and so with, unless we're looking at at cause and effect and, and and actually being mindful, it's very easy to get lost in these. If you if you if you feel the quiet and you don't say to yourself quiet quiet quiet, you'll start to think that it's somehow permanent. You'll miss the fact that it's arising and ceasing. As soon as you say to yourself quiet quiet, because you're not clinging to it, when it ceases, you won't cultivate it anymore. And you'll say, oh yes, this is also something that arises and ceases, and you'll give it up. You'll have you won't have the attachment which continues it, which perpetuates it, and perpetuates the the seeking for it. And this will allow you to overcome the wrong path. The point being, the point simply that there are things that make you forget about being mindful. Uh, there's things that, that you think, oh, well, this is, this is outside of the practice of mindfulness. I should be mindful of everything else, but when I get to this, I should stop being mindful. And that is, that is what is described as getting on the wrong path. So sim quite simply, staying on the right path is to continue to be mindful no matter what comes. If it's quiet, you acknowledge quiet. If it's calm, you acknowledge calm. If you have knowledge and vision, you say knowing, knowing, seeing, seeing, and that's it. 
when you do that, then you get on the right path. So slowly the mind realizes this. The mind accepts that mindfulness is the path and, and becomes proficient at catching even the good things. Even things that are attractive, are enticing, are desirable, are, are pleasant, it accepts the practice of being mindful of them. It sees that they're not leading anywhere. It realizes that, yes, how could they bring any benefit besides just the continuation of themselves. And so then you enter into the real path. This is when the person stops practicing wrongly, rightly, wrongly, rightly, and begins to practice solely on the right path. means begins to practice mindfulness in earnest. It's at this time that all the vipassana jnanas come up. This can be a difficult time, because here is where a lot of our uh, beliefs are challenged, a lot of our ideas are, about reality are upset, um, it's where we're brought face to face with our attachments and our aversions. And it's where we begin to change, we begin to change the way we look at things. We begin to see that even our own selves doesn't exist. Um, it's where we're forced to let go. It's where we have to experience excruciating pain and, and, and displeasure or unpleasantness. And we have to ask ourselves the question. We have to make a choice to run away from it or to, to let go completely. The only way to make it through is to let go completely. If you are still clinging to anything, it's like dragging lead weights behind you. You can't finish the practice if you're still clinging. Why? Because you you can't overcome the pain and the suffering. In in um, in the beginning, you when you feel pain, you might move a little bit uh, to avoid the pain, or you might shift your position. And then after a few days, you start to realize not realize that's not really happening, or that's not really helping. And so you just start you you start to move less and less, and you let the pain come more and more. And then finally, you have to make a choice. You have to say, "Am I really going to go for this?" Because the pain gets so excruciating, it can get so excruciating that you, you you either have to go back and say, "Okay, time to move again," or you have to commit completely and say, "No, really, if I die, I die." And of course, you don't die. You 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 become free as a result. This kind of thing has to come. All of your attachments. You know. In the beginning, you you cling to them. You you stop practicing, and you cling to happiness and so on. You cling to peace. You cling to pleasure. You cling to to calm and so on. But as you continue on, you see it's not getting anywhere. So you let go and let go and let go, until finally you have to make a choice. Are you going to allow yourself to be without these things completely? Are you going to let go completely? So it challenges you. It's um, quite a difficult thing to under to see things clearly and that's really what's special about it. it whatever you think wisdom is whatever you think these realizations are they're not that they can't be that that's what they can never be because if you could if you could imagine what they are they wouldn't be they wouldn't change you it's what you didn't realize it's what you weren't prepared for that uh, that changes you it's it's completely new. Something whatever is completely new to you, that's true wisdom. And so we should expect the challenge and we should welcome it. And this is what we should understand the practice of vipassana to be. That's called patipadanyana dasana. We said we go through these stages of knowledge until we start to turn away. Whereas before we would try to find exciting and new things we come to realize that this that this is a impossible task, that there's nothing that is really going to satisfy us. And so we start to see everything is just the same. All of the things that used to entice us, we see that's not really going to make me happy. It's, I'm just fooling myself. It's creating addiction and which leads nowhere. It eventually leads to sorrow and loss. And so we give it up. We say that's not, can't possibly be the way to happiness. And so we let go. The mind makes a shift away from finding happiness externally towards finding happiness just by letting go. At that point, one enters into, one, one makes it all the way from this 
this state of entanglement to a state of uh, unentanglement, no? where one experiences everything objectively. It's called Sankarupekanyana. It's the highest of the vipassana jnanas. I won't de detail them all. It's something that you shouldn't really worry too much about anyway. But just to be clear where we're going, we're trying to get to the point where we experience everything just for what it is. When you see, you just see it as seeing. When you hear, it's just hearing. When there's pain, it's just pain. Somehow you, your mind gets so clear that you no longer uh, judge these things. You, know, you get to you, you you when you get to this state, it feels like you're just on the highway, kind of. Everything is just rising, falling, sitting, touching, seeing, hearing, smelling, bending, stretching. Everything is so clear. It's not just being neutral, but it's being clearly aware of everything as it is. This, 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 and you're able to be to practice perfectly. This is the state that we're aiming for. You have to go through a lot to get there, but be clear where we're going. Once you get to this state, the mind really—it's really this is the, un, un, the the unentanglement. All of these knots suddenly the mind just seems to slip out of them, like like we're tangled up like this. And once you work it out, it just starts to slip apart, like a slip knot, like it wasn't even there. It's very much like a tangle. It's not—it's not exactly a knot, because as soon as you untangle it, it just slips apart. So by seeing things clearly in this way, objectively, you don't have to do anything else because it's all, all, all because of the tangles. All of your problems are just because of the tangles, the entanglement. Your mind starts to slip out and slip out. So at this time, the mind, the person feels like their mind is kind of drifting off, kind of like they're falling asleep, until finally the mind doop, drops out and enters into nibbana. At that moment, this is called jnana dasana visuddhi. So, seeing nibbana for yourself, knowledge and vision of nibbana. When one enters into this state of cessation, where there is no seeing, no hearing, no smelling, no tasting, no feeling, no thinking, no, no remembering, no, no, no conscious awareness, you can't look back and say it was this, it was that, because you don't remember. There's no remembering at that time. This is called jnana dasana visuddhi, where the the, the the person realizes the the cessation of uh, of suffering. The mind just slips out of of experience because it has no attachment anymore. It's really actually the most natural state. It's the state without clinging. When the mind is free from clinging, then there is no reason for it to experience. It just exits this um, arisen this realm of arisen phenomena enters into the realm of the unarisen, which is Nibbāna. And that's, the, that's really the end. Um, the practice is simply to realize that and, and realize it again and again until the mind, uh, the mind prefers it. Because the first time you realize it, it seems like something quite strange. It's, it doesn't seem, or you don't quite realize what it is. You just know that it's incredibly peaceful and it, it leads to some sort of purity of mind. Um, you're seeing Nibbāna, of course, cuts off many of the defilements in the mind. It cuts off doubt about what is the right path. It cuts off wrong view of self, because you see everything cease. It cuts off um, views about what is what is uh, right. Sorry, it cuts off doubt about the, the practice that you're doing, and it cuts off doubt uh, or wrong views about what is the practice. So you, you lose all interest in practices that are useless. You realize that they're useless. You come to see that um, you understand perfectly what is the path of practice. And as you see more and more like this, you realize this more and more, the mind starts to incline in this direction. So a person, this is the, the four stages of enlightenment, go because of this. The first time you see Nibbāna, you're, you're not yet free from from defilement, um, because the mind still goes back to cling and out of habit. But as you see nibbana again and again and again, you, you slowly lose your your desire to cling to arisen phenomena, and the mind begins to incline towards freedom from uh, arisen phenomena as being suffering. And 
that is that is what we call anupadisesa nibbana, nibbana without remainder. When you eventually get to the point where there's nothing left, there's no reason for the mind to cling anymore, and there's no clinging left in the mind. The mind has become totally pure. So this is a detailed explanation of, of the path. Uh, you know, it gets even far more detailed than that. We have the 16 stages of knowledge to talk about. That should be for people who have practiced, done some advanced practice, so we won't go there yet. Um, but this is something that I think is useful to paint a picture of where we're going and make it clear where we're going. We're not trying to practice, we're not practicing to see colors or lights or to gain peace and calm. We're practicing to see the three characteristics, impermanent, suffering, and non-self, leading, leading us to see things objectively, to not become partial for or against anything. Once you see sabbe sankara anicca, sabbe sankara dukkha, sabbe dhamma anatta, all formations are impermanent, suffering, and non-self, along with dhammas. Uh, you begin to lose your attachment, you lose your partiality, and you become less entangled with things. You see it's impermanent, it's suffering, it's not, it can't satisfy you, it can't bring you peace, you can't control it, and so you let go of it. When you let go of it, your mind drops out, your mind let, is, is released from it. All of the tangle, the entangle, entanglement is gone and enters into Nibbana. This is all there is to it, really. It's um, it's a simple path, but it's you see that it's, it's it's as simple as the path out of a forest. If you don't know the path out of the forest, then it, it can be as simple as you want. You know, at this tree, turn right; at that tree, turn left. Follow this stream, and so on. If you don't know any of that, the way out can be as simple as as you like, and you'll never find it. And that's really what we're what we're at here. If we didn't have the Buddha to explain these things didn't have the Buddha to, and, and his disciples to give us the path to follow, we would never get there ourselves. We would never find the way out. But once you see it, it's actually quite simple. This is why a person who has realized it is, is free from doubt about what is the right path, because they see how, how perfect it is, how real it is, how intrinsic to reality the path is. So I hope that's been helpful, at least to give us some idea of where we're going and now, after all that, we will try to do maybe a half an hour of meditation together. So, that's all for tonight.